This is Catholic Daily Brief. Episode 16. What was the early church like? Hopefully after last episode and your own reading of the Gospels, you're comfortable with the claim that Christ did institute a church. It seems to be that that was Christ's clear intention through his words and his actions, that it was the belief of the early Christians as well, that there was a visible church with particular kind of authority given to the apostles, with certain truths of the faith that we're bound to believe, that they were bound to believe, certain ways of praying that our Lord instituted or commanded them. So now we'll ask the question, what was the early church like? And we'll look at Acts of the Apostles and some of the things said in Paul's letters. We'll look at elements from the book of Revelation. And also we'll look at a lot of testimony from the early church, from the fathers of the church. So we need to ask such questions as, what did they believe? How did they pray? What was the structure like? What time was coffee and donuts? These are the really important questions we need to ask. So a good place to begin is in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And referring to the community of Christians, it says, They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to the communal life, to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. So in this small statement, you have quite a bit. So you have the teaching of the apostles, right? The preaching of the gospel. There was a communal life. This is just a sign of the church being visible, right? There was an actual community of people. To the breaking of the bread, which as we'll see in the preaching of the fathers, the teaching of the fathers of the church, this means more than just a meal, right? We would say this refers to the Eucharist, doing what the Lord had commanded them to do in remembrance of him. And to the prayers, you know, common prayer. So you have teaching the faith to the community of people, the breaking of the bread, praying together. You also have one of the first thing the apostles do in Acts 1, 24 and 25. They recognize the need to appoint a successor, someone to take the place of Judas. So they pray that the Holy Spirit might guide them to select the right one. And St. Peter said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry from which Judas turned away to go to his own place. So you have this, this uh, appointment, this successor of one of the apostles, the recognition that their authority is unique and that just like the 12 tribes of Israel, Christ intended the 12 apostles to be his witnesses in a special way, as he says, part of the apostolic ministry. So they recognize their, their particular authority and the importance that they continue on as the Lord had intended. In a similar way, as the church began to grow, and the need to preach the gospel, pressing them on, the apostles recognized that to administer charitable works, you know, to care for the poor, for orphan and orphans and widows, they would need more men to assist them. And so this is in Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 6. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. 
they presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now this laying on of hands is, is significant. It happens not only here in Acts, but many times it's mentioned by St. Paul, and it's mentioned quite a bit by the fathers of the church, uh, those who were disciples of the apostles themselves. So already you have a, a couple instances a couple instances of the apostles recognizing and exercising their unique authority to appoint not only successors, but also to appoint what we now call deacons, which is just from the Greek word diakonos, or, or servant. The apostles not only lay their hands on and pray to appoint or ordain these men as deacons, but there's also laying on of hands for a ministry that is the same as the apostles. So, for example, in uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy, he says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And later on in that same letter, he says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. And Timothy was not uh, a deacon. He was one that preached the word. So the apostles not only appointed or ordained deacons or servants to uh, tend to the needs of, of the poor and also to assist in liturgical work, but also they ordained or laid their hands on others who also fulfilled the same ministry as the apostles, that is, preaching the word. You see this uh, said explicitly by St. Paul in his second letter to Timothy, in, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. He says, What you have heard from me before many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So if you remember in our episode about where the Bible came from, we talked about how the, the word, the gospel, the new covenant was preached primarily. It was handed down. And this is no surprise that the Jewish people had a strong oral tradition. Not all of this was written down. They, they preached the word to others who then preached the word to others, etc. St. Paul says this in his second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 15. Stand firm then, brothers, and keep the traditions we have taught you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So St. Paul and the apostles communicate certain things by writing, but they also communicate seemingly equally important things by word of mouth. And, of course, before all of this was written down, the only transmission was by word of mouth, by preaching. Now, there's so much more in the New Testament that we could look at to get a better idea of what the early church looked like, how they prayed and all of that. But there's just not enough time, and we're already kind of halfway through, so I want to move on to the fathers of the church. I know I mentioned that go over the book of Revelation too, because there's a lot there regarding the, there's a lot there that mirrors the, the mass as we have it now. But uh, that'll be the member episode this week, because there, it's, there's so much, and it's really rich uh, to look at the different elements that are clearly the same as what we have in mass today. So moving on to the testimony of some of the fathers of the church, again, keeping in mind that uh, I'll just use the earliest fathers of the church because you can find literally thousands of quotations here to give us an idea of what the early church looked like, but I'll stick to the earliest. For example, like St. Clement, who wrote his letter to the Corinthians in the year 80. Ignatius was a disciple of the Apostle John. He wrote his letter to the Magnesians in the year 110. Irenaeus was also 2nd century. The latest I'll go is the the 5th century with some of these quotations. But part of that is to give you both the idea of continuity from the apostles because they were, these early ones were taught by the apostles themselves and show the continuity from there up through the centuries. 
Another important reason to do that is that the validity of the church instituted by Christ has to be based on its ability to trace back all the way back to Christ and his apostles. So if we find here in the early centuries, in the early years of the church, the same beliefs and structure and sacraments and teaching as we have in the church now, that's a strong argument in favor of its unique place as the one church instituted by Christ. There are, you know, theories of other people and other Christians that claim that the church was really hidden until, you know, much later in time. It was kind of underground or hidden uh, until centuries or millennium later. But that's a really hard argument to make. You know, how do you establish the validity of a church if that's your argument? You know, it has to be something that is based on the words of Christ, the teaching of his apostles, and it has to resemble how the early church prayed and taught and looked. So let's get to our first uh, quote from the Fathers, St. Clement of Rome. Again, this letter was written to the Corinthians in the year 80. If anyone disobey the things which have been said by him through us, let them know that they will involve themselves in transgression and in no small danger. Okay, so this is quite a um, bold statement of authority. Clement, being a bishop in Rome, uh, saw himself as having a particular authority. And we'll go on to explain Peter's unique role in a different episode. But already, this is the year 80 he's writing this, within the lifetime of at least one of the apostles, possibly uh, a couple of them. And he's saying that Christ speaks through the church, and in particular through its bishop, uh, Clement himself. Not only that, but he's writing to Corinth from Rome. So he's claiming an authority, a teaching authority, in the church of Corinth even though he's not bishop there. St. Ignatius of Antioch, a disciple of John the Apostle himself, writes in the year 110, where there is Christ Jesus, there is the Catholic Church. Now that term Catholic, of course, means universal. We would just say in our thesis that there can only be one true church, one church instituted by Christ. The only reason we need to call it the Catholic Church nowadays, as if it's a denomination, is to distinguish it. You can't just say the church because not everyone holds that there is just one church. So Catholic is not the name of a denomination. It's just the church universal throughout the world that Christ instituted is what Ignatius intends here. He goes on to say, Now therefore it has been my privilege to see you in the person of your God-inspired bishop Damas and in the persons of your worthy presbyters Bassus and Apollonius and my fellow servant the deacon Zotion. For he is subject to the bishop as to the grace of God and to the presbytery as to the law of Jesus Christ. So you have bishop, presbyter, deacon, or bishop, priest, deacon, three sacred orders that we hold now uh, still in the church. More along the same lines from Ignatius still. Take care to do all things in harmony with God, with the bishop presiding in the place of God, and with the presbyters in the place of the council of the apostles, and with the deacons who are most dear to me, entrusted with the business of Jesus Christ, who was with the Father from the beginning and is at last made manifest. Again, in the same letter, In like manner, let everyone respect the deacons as they would respect Jesus Christ, and just as they respect the bishop as a type of the Father, and the presbyters as the council of God and college of the apostles. Without these, it cannot be called a church. Moving on to some quotations about the sacraments in particular, Irenaeus, uh, still in the second century, says, For as we are lepers in sin, we are made clean by means of the sacred water and the invocation of the Lord from our old transgressions, being spiritually regenerated as newborn babes, even as the Lord has declared, except a man be born again through water and the Spirit, he shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Justin Martyr says, and he's, he's writing this in the year 150, As many as are persuaded and believe that, we, that what we teach and say is true and undertake to be able to live accordingly are brought by us where there is water 
and are regenerated in the same manner in which we were ourselves regenerated. Hippolytus, writing in the year 217, Perhaps someone will ask, What does it conduce unto piety to be baptized? In the first place, that you may do what has seemed good to God. In the next place, being born again by water unto God, so that you change your first birth, which was from concupiscence, and are able to attain salvation, which would be otherwise impossible. St. Augustine says, According to apostolic tradition, the churches of Christ hold inherently that without baptism and participation at the table of the Lord, it is impossible for any man to attain either to the kingdom of God or to salvation and life eternal. This is the witness of Scripture too. So there you have mentioned not only of baptism, but also the table of the Lord or the Eucharist. One of the earliest writings we have, the teaching of the twelve apostles, teaching of the twelve apostles, also called the Didache, written in, written in the year seventy, says, "Assemble on the Lord's day and break bread and offer the Eucharist. But first, make confession of your faults, so that your sacrifice may be a pure one. Anyone who has a difference with his fellow is not to partake of it until he has been reconciled, so as to avoid any profanation of your sacrifice. For this is the offering of which the Lord has said, Everywhere and always bring me a sacrifice that is undefiled." St. Clement again from the year 80 in his letter to the Corinthians that we quoted earlier, Our sin will not be small if we eject from the episcopate those who blamelessly and holily have offered its sacrifices. Blessed are those presbyters who have already finished their course and who have obtained a fruitful and perfect release. He also says, Make certain, therefore, that you all observe one common Eucharist, for there is but one body of our Lord Jesus Christ and but one cup of union with his blood and one single altar of sacrifice, even as there is also but one bishop, with his clergy and my fellow servitors, the deacons. This will ensure that all your doings are in full accord with the will of God. Correction, that last one is St. Ignatius, not St. Clement. Again, St. Ignatius, speaking of the Eucharist, says, Take note of those who hold heterodox opinions on the grace of Jesus Christ, which has come to us, and see how contrary their opinions are to the mind of God. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer, because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, flesh which suffered for our sins, and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. So this is Ignatius who was taught by the Apostle John speaking very clearly about uh, the Eucharist. And there are many more quotes that we could produce similar to this from the other fathers, but we'll do that when we do uh, a dedicated episode on the Eucharist. As a resource, I'd recommend a book called The Teachings of the Church Fathers by John Willis. Uh, it's a very good compilation of various quotes like this under the various categories of Catholic Church teaching, showing the continuity between the Fathers of the Church and the Church of today. Also keep in mind that uh, we'll go over the many elements of the Mass that are present in the Book of Revelation in this week's member episode. So if you haven't yet, please go to my Patreon and become a member to be able to listen to not only that, but also past member episodes, also audio of spiritual works and commentary by the Church Fathers on each Sunday's Gospel. Thank you for listening to Catholic Daily Brief. Please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and give a good rating. God bless.